Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast annual best of segment. Each year in December, we replay some of our favorite shows from earlier in the year, the ones we want to make sure you didn't miss. This week, we are replaying episode 361 with Dr. Bob Whedon, a retired veterinarian who's still going strong as a volunteer at a low-cost spay and neuter clinic and a board member of the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs. Bob worked in private practice and also spent many years teaching in the shelter medicine program at the University of Illinois. He also holds a master's degree in public health. Bob and I discuss the V in trap, neuter, vaccinate, return, TNVR, is so critical. We also talk about the concept of herd immunity in relation to rabies and about cats and toxoplasmosis, including how to talk with public health officials about it. This information, packed CCP replay, is a must-listen for anyone involved in TNR. I hope you find it helpful in the work you do helping cats. You've tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Bob Whedon. Dr. Whedon is currently a feral cat surgeon working and volunteering with TLC PetSnip in Lakeland, Florida. Having retired in 2018 as a clinical assistant professor and service head of shelter medicine at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine, where he trained veterinary students in high-quality, high-volume spay-neuter techniques. As a result of the growth of the shelter medicine program at UI, students taking the rotation received experimental training at several area shelters, and the number of students taking the rotation grew to more than 100 per year, sterilizing more than 5,000 animals per year. Prior to going to Illinois, Dr. Whedon was the senior partner of a seven-doctor, two-location small animal practice in Wilmington, North Carolina. As an advocate for solving the problem of pet overpopulation, Dr. Whedon volunteered with Friends of Felines, a group that surgically sterilizes feral cats in the Wilmington community, and was a volunteer surgeon at the on-site spay-neuter facility at New Hanover County Animal Control Services, where animals were surgically sterilized prior to adoption. Dr. Whedon serves on the board of directors for the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs, an international organization whose goal is to develop and implement non-surgical sterilants to help solve the problem of pet overpopulation worldwide. Dr. Whedon served as the veterinarian on the new Hanover County, North Carolina Board of Health for six years and was a member of the Animal Control Services Advisory Committee. Dr. Whedon served on the board of directors of the Public Health Foundation of New Hanover County and UNC Public Health Foundation Board. Dr. Whedon is the co-author of the chapter on rabies in the textbook, Infectious Disease Management in Animal Shelters, the second edition, and two chapters in the recently published textbook, Fundamentals of High-Quality, High-Volume Spay-Neuter. Dr. Whedon attended Purdue University, where he received his Bachelor of Science in Animal Science and his Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degrees. He received his Master of Public Health from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Whedon, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Stacy. It's a privilege to be here. 
Yeah, it was great. I mean, it's been a couple of years since we first met, and I knew then I wanted to have you on the show, and I'm glad we were finally able to find that time. You had to retire in order to be able to have enough time to chat with me. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I I was going to say the same thing. You know, now that I'm retired, I've got all this time, but I'm actually busier now than when I was working. (laughs) (laughs) So before we dive into all of the projects and the programs and your involvement, things you're doing, tell me first and foremost, how did you get passionate about cats? I was in private practice for a number of years and had a number of pet cats. And when I got involved with New Hanover County Animal Control Services and the Friends of Felines people in Wilmington sterilizing feral cats, I just recognized that there was such a need and that I had the tools that we could address that need. So it just kind of started several decades ago. And then as I went forward, I went back to school and got my Master of Public Health, and I recognized the importance of population medicine and epidemiology and using data to assess response to what we were doing. I recognized that really trap, neuter, vaccinate return programs. And, you know, given my public health background, I prefer the term TNVR rather than TNR because I think that the V, emphasizing the fact that we're vaccinating these cats against rabies, which creates a barrier to the disease in the community between wildlife and domestic animals and people, I think that is such an important part of these programs. And it also engages a whole different group of stakeholders. You know, we talk about TNR as being for the cats and, you know, helping to limit population and whatnot. But when you start talking about the public health benefits of TNVR programs, you engage a whole different group of stakeholders, the public health community and county commissioners and city commissioners and people that are in the leadership positions and communities can then start to recognize that there is a value to these programs because in addition to helping limit the population, there are numerous public health benefits. I've mentioned rabies and, you know, happy to talk about toxoplasmosis as well. That is a scaremongering tactic that people who are opposed to these programs often use. And I can show you why TNVR programs actually are better at preventing toxoplasmosis in the environment than the old trap and kill programs. It's extremely interesting. Sometimes I don't think we think about that. So, you know, the spay-neuter component of TNVR is really what we do to reduce cat overpopulation and some health issues for the cat in general. But that V component is really the part of it that's protecting the human. I mean, when I approach health departments to say, hey, I want to have a new program in this community, this is what it's about. You know, I do stress the fact that every cat gets a rabies vaccine and is examined and it helps reduce the spread of disease within the community. And that seems to be the approach. But it's sort of a two-pronged component. There's one that impacts the cat and impacts population and the other, which is that public health component. Does that sound right to you? Absolutely. We know that the TNVR programs focus on the cats. And one of the things that my work with the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs, we have been over the last several years involved in a modeling project where we actually been used very sophisticated computer modeling to look at what level of either contraception, if we had a non-surgical contraceptive or sterilization, be it surgical or non-surgical, what levels would we need 
to hit in a population of cats to see the population decrease over time. And unfortunately, the models show that, you know, we've got to sterilize about 80% of the animals in that population. And that's created some problems for boots on the ground people because these county commissioners get a hold of this research and they say, well, you're not possibly going to sterilize 80% of the cats. Why should we even try? And here's the thing. When you say population, you don't necessarily have to talk about Polk County, Florida, where I am. I mean, that's a big area and there are a lot of cats and it, the resources required to sterilize 80% of those cats right out of the gate would be enormous. But we can maybe start with a community, a neighborhood, a trailer park, an area where there are an excessive number of cats that are creating nuisance behaviors and, you know, causing people to call animal control and say, hey, come get these cats because they're, you know, spraying in my garden and digging up my garden. And so if we could focus and start out small and sterilize 80% of those and then grow the program and then maybe from a trailer park to neighborhood to community and then eventually, you know, the whole county, then we can be effective. So I guess my point here is that just because the research shows that in order to be effective, we have to be sterilizing 80% of the animals. I still think that if we sterilize one cat, it benefits that cat. And right now, this is the time of year I do feral cat sterilizations on a volunteer basis for TLC Pet Snip here in Lakeland. And they've got several locations here in Central Florida. And we do feral cat sterilizations in collaboration with the uh, local SPCA Florida. Really nice collaboration we've got going. And a lot of the cats we're sterilizing right now are pregnant. And, you know, if we can prevent those kittens from coming into that community, even though we're not doing 80% of the cats in a given area, we're still benefiting that one cat. She's not having those kittens. She's not going to develop pyometra if she doesn't have kittens. And think about it from the standpoint of benefiting the cat and then the group of cats and then the whole population. So that's the cat benefit. But the public health benefit, from my perspective, I hate to say it trumps it because I really think it's important that we care about the cats. But in a community, to be able to vaccinate these cats against rabies and create a barrier to the disease in wildlife. Raccoons, when I lived in North Carolina, we had a huge raccoon rabies problem. We have rabies here in Polk County, mostly bats. We do see it occasionally in raccoons. So we're vaccinating those animals to create a barrier between wildlife and pets and people in the community. And I think that the leadership in communities, when they see this and see the evidence, I don't know how they can say, no, we're not going to do that. Even in Polk County, for instance, you know, you know, the sheriff, Grady Judd, is the head of animal control because it's within the sheriff's department. And Sheriff Judd is very well respected in this community, but he's an avid bird photographer and he doesn't believe in TNVR because he likes to photograph birds. He doesn't believe in putting cats back out in the environment because they're going to kill birds. Well, studies have shown that the cats that are sterilized and provided resources in colonies do less predation than cats that haven't been sterilized and are provided resources. But also consider this, by sterilizing those animals, we're reducing the number of cats that are ultimately going to be preying on birds. I think that really looking at it from every angle, benefiting the cats by sterilizing them, protecting the health of the community by vaccinating them. And then, you know, if we have time, I'm happy to discuss toxoplasmosis and we can talk about how, you know, TNVR programs really help prevent that in the community too. I would like to keep going with this a little bit farther. And, you know, some of the things that I would like you to touch upon the toxoplasmosis and herd immunity to yep. 
And I'm not sure if our listeners really understand what all that means. So talk about that as well as what can we use when people start going crazy about toxoplasmosis with us around cats and stuff? You know, what is it that we can say back to them to convince them not to be all panicky? All right. Let me talk about herd immunity first. Herd immunity, it's the concept that indirect protection from infectious disease that occurs when a large percentage of the population has become immune to the infection. If you look back, you're probably not old enough to remember polio when you were a kid. Unfortunately, I am, and (laughs) that's why I'm retired. But, you know, we found out, epidemiologists found out that the number of cases of polio were far lower than they expected in an environment after they started vaccinating children, even though not all kids were vaccinated. And they figured out that that was because of herd immunity. If you have a group of, of, and we can use cats, since we're talking about cats as an example, if you got two cats and, you know, one's vaccinated against rabies and one is not, and they both encounter a rabid cat, then the vaccinated cat is going to be protected. The non-vaccinated cat is not. But then let's say each one of those cats then encounters two more cats, and of those two more cats, 50% of her immunity, one's vaccinated, one's not, then only one cat is going to actually get rabies in that next level because the other cat it encountered was vaccinated and the vaccinated cat didn't get it. So it doesn't matter. The other cats it encounters are not going to get rabies because it's not spreading it. And you follow this down several generations. And what you see is that the number of cases of rabies in that population is very low. Whereas if nobody's vaccinated, then, you know, it goes through the whole population. But here's the thing, Stacy, and this is, there's really no getting around this. In communities that practice TNVR, but also they have animal control come out and trap and remove cats, let's say they remove two vaccinated cats and they're replaced by non-vaccinated cats in that community. Then all of a sudden you've weakened that herd immunity and you're going to see more rabies because if a rabid cat encounters two cats that haven't been vaccinated, they're both going to get it. And then when they encounter other cats, they're going to continue to spread it. And I I don't know if I've adequately explained this. I've got a really nice graphic that I could show that I think would help. But basically, the premise of herd immunity is you don't have to vaccinate every cat because you're going to vaccinate enough that it's going to protect the spread through that population. And removing cats after they've been vaccinated then weakens that herd immunity and negates that effect. So turning to toxoplasmosis, what are your thoughts around that? You know, this is a really contentious issue. And I'll be very honest, the cat is the definitive host for T. gondii, the organism that causes Toxoplasma gondii, causes toxoplasmosis. I mean, there's there's no getting around that. The cat and, you know, wild felids as well, they harbor the organism in their GI tract and it reproduces there and then they shed the organism in their stool. But here's the thing about toxins. A lot of people don't realize, you know, they think that there's an epidemiology and infectious disease textbook that says cats have gotten a bad rap about toxoplasmosis. So the most likely way to catch toxoplasmosis from a cat is to eat the cat undercooked. And I say that tongue in cheek, that's a quote out of a textbook because everybody's afraid of, oh, you know, if I touch a cat, I'm going to get toxoplasmosis. Cats shed the organism for a very, very short period of time, one to two weeks once in their life. And and I'm going to say once in capital letters. And it's usually the young juvenile cats learning to hunt 
that will encounter a rodent, become infected, and then they will start the life cycle of, of the organism, which is a very short period of time, actually. They will start shedding the organism in their feces for a short period of time, one to two weeks, that one time in their life. So my argument is that TNVR programs prevent the birth of kittens so that you don't have as many young juveniles encountering the organism when they first start hunting and then shedding it into the environment. Going out and trapping and killing cats willy-nilly, you know, a three or four-year-old cat, that cat has shed the organism early on in its life and it's never going to shed again. Removing that cat from the environment does absolutely nothing to prevent the spread of the organism, you know, into the environment, into the soil, through the feces. It's the young juvenile cats that when they first start hunting are exposed and shed for a very short period of time once in their life. So by preventing that birth of those kittens, they won't become young juveniles, then there'll be less contamination of the environment. That's great information to know, to have a conversation with public health officials and be able to explain disease that way, because that then makes them worry less about the situation. I mean, I'm not sure how well-versed public health officials are around the issue of toxoplasmosis in cats. And so I would say the more information we can provide, the better off we're all going to be. Oh, I agree with that. I think it's misunderstood and it's used by anti-TNVR people to say, look, these cats are contaminating the environment. And they're even talking about in Hawaii how, you know, they're finding it in monk seals and how the cats are responsible for the death of the monk seals. And when reality, monk seal population is at the highest it's ever been. And as I said, the cat is a definitive host. I can't change that. Can we totally eliminate cats from the environment? No, we've been trapping and killing cats for decades, and it's not working. So the organism is in the environment. You go to the CDC, read up on toxoplasmosis. Most likely way to get it is to eat undercooked meat. You can also get it from the soil if you're gardening and you don't wash your hands before you go eat something because it is in the environment. That's a fact. But if we can prevent the definitive host, the cat, from shedding the organism into the environment, we will reduce that environmental contamination. Best way to do that is prevent those kittens from being born because they're not going to become the young juveniles to start hunting, get infected, start passing it, and then that's how environmental contamination occurs. So yeah, I think it's a, a really strong argument for communities to engage in trap, neuter, vaccinate, return programs. Let's shift the conversation over to ACC and D and share with us. Give us an update. We've had Joyce Briggs on the show a couple times, but it's been a while. So anything new and exciting happening there with regards to non-surgical sterilization for cats? Well, there is. And I have to be very careful what I say because being on the board of directors, I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. We just were at a meeting where we were presented some research that I've been on the board now 12 years, and I was involved in the Gonacon field trial that we did. Gonacon is a vaccine that creates antibodies against GnRH, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, the master reproductive hormone in the body. And Dr. Julie Levy did a laboratory study several years ago that showed in, in laboratory cats, it would contracept them for over three years. And we thought, gosh, we could use this with feral cats because what's the life expectancy of a feral cat? If you could contracept one for three years, then that may be just as good as a sterilant. So we did a field trial in a group of uh, quasi-feral 
colony. These cats were handleable. We socialized them and worked with them, but it was a simulated feral colony. And our results weren't nearly as good as Dr. Levy's. We only got a little over a year worth of contraception. So we ended up terminating the project because we just didn't think it was going to be feasible. So I just went to this meeting and it was reported that there's a researcher who's working on something that has sterilized female cats for, I believe, a two-year period now, whereas all the control cats immediately got pregnant. So what I can say, Stacy, is it is coming. We've got something that's showing great promise that would be just an injection and it would permanently sterilize a female cat. Not so sure it's going to work in males, but other people are working on other things in males. And, you know, Zuterin was an injectable sterilant for male dogs that was out for a while. And ultimately the company folded because they, well, for a lot of reasons, but it, you know, was a sterilant for male dogs. And people were saying at the time, do we really need to focus on males? Maybe we should focus on females. And I remember Andrew Rowan one time saying, do males matter? I some, to some extent agree with that. But the fact that we have something that will permanently sterilize a female cat. Now, how long is it going to be before it's available? You know, it'll have to go through approval by the Food and Drug Administration. And we're talking several years down the road. In terms of cost, I have no idea, but, you know, it's been conjectured that probably somewhere around $30 a dose, which is pretty similar to what it costs to surgically sterilize a cat now. So that's not too bad. I mean, if it you know, is $100 a dose, that's a different thing, but we'll see. And I know there's other research going on as well that is showing promise, but this is the first report I've seen that shows complete sterility for two-year period of time with a single injection. So we're really, really excited about this. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I've been waiting for years and years and years for a development of a non-surgical sterilant for cats, for feral cats. I mean, I'd love to have, and I'm sure you would, you know, after all the years of feral cat clinics that you have done, you'd probably much rather be able to do an injection rather than have to do all these space surgeries that you're doing and that kind of thing. So it'll be very exciting to see how it develops. Well, it creates a problem, Stacey. How are we going to identify those cats that have been given this injection? Do you struggle to find foster homes for your animals? Are you struggling to communicate with your fosters and keep track of what they need? Introducing Foster Space, powered by Dubert, where recruiting and communicating with your fosters just got a whole lot easier. Need a new foster for an animal? Simply create the foster request in Dubert and it will automatically send to existing Duberteers and also post on your Facebook pages and groups. Need to communicate with your fosters? No problem. Dubert makes it easy to communicate via text with individual fosters or to get messages out to your different groups of fosters. Your fosters can even put in help desk style tickets for questions or supplies they need and the Dubert system will help you keep track and stay organized. Check out Foster Space by signing in on your Dubert account today at www.dubert.com. Are you a fan of the online events we hold throughout the year? If so, here's something new from the Community Cats podcast for 2021, the Community Cats Pass for discounted entry to all events throughout the year. Simply purchase this pass before the online cat conference begins on January 29th, 2021, and we will automatically register you for all of our events in 2021. 
at just $225 for one device that passes a savings of at least $85 over signing up for each event individually. Your pass includes access to the private Online Cats Conference Facebook page, VIP access to the Online Cat Conference, the Online Kitten Conference, the United Spay Alliance Conference, Behavior Day, Feline Leukemia Day, Fundraising Day, and our Neighborhood Cats Trapper Certification Program, plus access to recordings for all conferences that offer them. And if we add in any more programs during the year, you will be invited to join those two on us. Just visit communitycatspodcast.com before January 29th to purchase your pass, and we'll look forward to seeing you at our next online event. Now we're tipping ears, which, you know, is fairly easy to do in a cat that's under anesthesia. If we don't have to anesthetize the cat, how are we going to identify that cat as having been treated with this non-surgical sterilant? And ACC and D is addressing that as well. We've got a marking project that we're currently testing. We had our first pilot phase and we're coming back with the second pilot here actually in about two weeks where we're going to, it's a technology that was developed in human medicine for vaccine delivery, the little microneedle patches that had vaccine embedded in the microneedles. And we have been working with Georgia Institute of Technology who developed this delivery system. And instead of putting vaccine in there, putting ink to deliver a tattoo, and it's, it's painless. We The first pilot study we did in totally awake dogs and cats with no pain whatsoever. And we're starting a second pilot study with a little bit larger tattoo because the first ones were fairly small and not terribly visible from a distance. So we're ACC and D is addressing this and is working on this because now, it may require, particularly a feral cat, which is unhandleable, may require some degree of sedation to apply this. But you can sedate a cat, do whatever you need to do. And it may be more humane to sedate the cat to give it its ejection as well of the sterilic. And then you can reverse that sedation and the cat wakes right back up and is released, you know, within 15 minutes. So, yeah, ACC and D is working on that as well. One thing that's become apparent, though, is the drugs that you need to use to sedate cats have gotten a lot more expensive over the last several years, too. So that is a pretty significant additional cost. When you were talking about the cost per cat at around $30 per cat. But I know in the past, many years ago, you know, we were at like $12 a cat. But now even the injectable anesthesia cocktails that are used at the MASH doll clinics and that kind of stuff. I mean, the uh, controlled substances that are out there, those costs are going up at an exponential rate. I know that's a concern for any clinic. Yeah, I mean, I think that as new products become developed and come to market, you know, you are going to see higher costs. But, you know, there's a safety factor. I remember when I started sterilizing feral cats. We were using large animal xylazine, which is a tranquilizer, and, you know, diluting it because it was significantly less expensive than small animal xylazine. Well... That's a what's called an alpha-2 agonist. It's a class of drugs. But there, you know, then metatomidine came out, which was more expensive, but didn't have a lot of the side effects that xylazine had. And then dexmetatomidine, which is got to go back to your organic chemistry to remember stereoisomers, you know, levorotatory, dextrorotatory. So the dex is a dextrorotatory metatomidine. You get all the benefit from and none of the side effects. Well, that's even more expensive. But it's been on the market now for a few years. And that price has come down. Dexmetatomidine is a wonderful drug. You give it to a cat, it'll be relaxed, it'll be calm. It also helps with pain. So when you give an injection of a non-surgical sterilant, 
cat's not going to feel it. You apply the microneedle patch to its ear to give it a tattoo indicating it's been treated. Then you reverse that with a drug called adapamazole. 15 minutes later, the cat's awake. And as chemical restraint becomes more sophisticated, it, it is a little bit more expensive. And we're going to have to use some of this, I believe, with a non-surgical form of, of sterilization. But we won't have to go to the extent of full general anesthesia. So I want to ask you about another one of the many projects that you're involved with. The I believe it's called the National Feline Resource Council. Can you share a little bit about that project? Yeah, the NFRC is... And several of us, the organizing driving force behind this is Peter Wolf, who I know you know and you know recognize. And this goes back to the public health thing we were talking about moments ago. Peter and I presented on the public health benefits of trap neuter vaccinate return programs at the American Public Health Association annual meeting in San Diego, November of 2018. And that was really cool because to my knowledge, that was the first TNVR presentation that the APHA has had in maybe forever. I don't know. And we were the only ones on the program that talked about that topic. So we were, we were discussing over dinner after our presentation about the need for an evidence-based resource that compiles, analyzes, and disseminates, you know, rigorous scientific research relative to the efficient management of free-roaming cats. And we kind of patterned it after the National Canine Research Council, which you're probably familiar with. You know, they disseminate evidence-based information on dog bites and that kind of stuff. And I think that there's been a need for a centralized repository, if you will, evidence-based information and a place where stakeholders can go from communities, you know, again, if you're a, a city councilman, for instance, or a county councilman, somebody wants to start a TNVR program in your community, and then others say, oh, no, this won't work because they kill birds. This is an unbiased central repository of evidence-based information. The people, it's free and everything on there is evidence-based. And so we're working to get as much content up there as possible. There are six of us that we review scientific peer-reviewed studies and we write. There are, there's a section called Fast Facts where people who just want the Reader's Digest version can go. There are issue briefs. We talk about public health and that sort of thing. And then there are research snapshots that talk about peer-reviewed papers and actually have a link to those papers. So it's a place where people can go to get evidence-based information on the efficient management of free-roaming cats. That's excellent. We'll have the link also in the show notes so that people can check it out and access information. We'll make sure we get that posted. Before we close, I just want to ask you, you are a volunteer with TLC PetSnip, and uh, Kristen and I had the opportunity to check out their clinic in Lakeland a few months ago when we were at uh, PodFest, a podcaster's conference, uh, Strange of Strange. So at the end of the day, we all had an itch and we had to go on field trips and go visit the kitties around there. But now that you've been volunteering with TLC and you know with their clinic and everything, it being sort of on the front lines for them, you know, what's it like for you when you're there? I believe you're there almost on a weekly basis doing their feral cat days and that kind of thing. What are the things that you're seeing? Are there any changes that you might have seen like 10 years ago or any words of wisdom for folks that are running clinics around the country? 
Yeah, I, in the interest of transparency, Stacy, I volunteer for their feral cat days, which we're starting to do more and more of them because of the need in Polk County here in Florida and the collaboration with SPCA Florida that we have developed. I also do like one day a week. They do pay me. I guess it is a job to sterilize some owned animals, but I I volunteer for the feral cats. So, you know, it's a kind of a combination job and volunteering. I, now that I'm old and I collect Social Security, I can't make too much money. So I end up volunteering. But their feral cat program is very good. They are a, an ASPCA Spay-Neuter Alliance clinic, which I have been to the ASPCA Spay-Neuter Alliance, formerly known as Humane Alliance in Asheville, North Carolina. Everything is protocol driven. And we have protocols literally for everything. And it makes it so efficient. You're not having to do one thing one way and one thing another way. You've got a standard protocol. You set up the same way. The surgery is done. Recovery is the same way. And it becomes so incredibly efficient. And it allows us to sterilize a whole bunch more cats than when I first started, you know, several decades ago. You know, a big day for us when I first started, it would have been 20 cats. Now, I mean, we'll do 40, 50 cats a day, easily one surgeon. And if we have two surgeons, you know, you can pretty much double that. So it's all about efficiency and the economy of scale. And on the owned animal side, I mean, it's just really gratifying. Like today, I thought for a moment, I might have to call you to postpone this podcast because I got a call about an emergency mass removal. It's pretty rare that the mass removal is an emergency, but this mass had been scheduled and then got postponed and now it had ruptured and it was kind of a mess. So I went in this morning and removed that. The dog's doing great. And to be able to provide these services for people in the community who have pets but may not have the resources to access mainstream veterinary care, for me is extremely gratifying. And I remember when I was in private practice, people complain about these low-cost clinics. And I really don't like the term low-cost because I like, I think affordable is a better term. You know, it's all about efficiency. It's all about an economy of scale. If you're a private practice veterinarian and you're spaying, you know, one animal an hour, you got to charge accordingly. If you're doing high-quality, high-volume spay-neuter procedures, then, and you're doing six or eight animals an hour, you don't need to charge as much per animal. And I remember when I was in private practice, I used to think, you know, when somebody said they couldn't afford something for their pet, why do you have a pet if you can't afford it? And I realized over the years that that was inappropriate on my part. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with Pets for Life. It's a, a yep. humane society in the United States initiative. And when I was at U of I, we did a little work with the Pets for Life people in Chicago. And it became abundantly clear to me that the people that access those services, they likely have smaller social networks, smaller family networks, smaller support networks. That pet may be the sole source of unconditional affection in that person's life. Who am I to say they shouldn't have that pet? And being able to provide these services through an organization like TLC PetSnip. One day I was in doing probably another mass removal, and uh, this little old lady brought this dog in. It was real sick. It had a pyometra. She was like nine years old, and she couldn't afford to go to a regular veterinarian. And so we ended up spaying the dog. Dog did great, lived, and this lady was so happy. I mean, just to see the expression on that lady's face 
you know, when she came to pick up the dog and then when she came back a week later to recheck the incision and take the sutures out, I mean, she just loved this little dog so much. And, and to be able to be involved with an organization that gives that much to the community, that's the best part of my retirement. I do it because it brings me tremendous gratification. And you know my passion for feral cat sterilization. So <laughs> being able to do that, you know, there's nothing better to spend on a day sterilizing feral cats as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> That's great, Dr. Whedon. So if there are folks that are interested in finding out more about either some of the projects that you are doing or if they have any questions, how would they do that? Well, they're welcome. I can give you my TLC PetSnip email address. It's real simple. It's Whedon, my last name, DVM, at TLCPetSnip.org. They're welcome to email me and I'm happy to answer their questions or direct them to appropriate resources. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? My passion was the public health aspect. And uh, of course, my work with ACCND, I appreciate you allowing me to share some of that exciting news and, and whatnot. I just, you know, there's a lot of scaremongering out there from people who don't believe in TNVR programs. And probably the worst was Peter Mara's book, you know, The Devast Wars. Yeah, Devastating Consequences of a Cuddly Killer. And there's so much misinformation. And he's citing such old, questionable research. But people believe that. This stuff. And so I guess my question to them is, okay, what's your alternative? Telling me something doesn't work does nothing to solve the problem. And I know that TNVR is not perfect. And I liken it to a slide rule. You know, I had a slide rule my senior year in high school. And then the very next year, my freshman year in college, Hewlett Packard came out with the pocket calculator. Imagine being the slide rule manufacturer the day the pocket calculator comes out. I liken TNVR to a slide rule. It works. Something better is going to come along. But until it does, it's the best thing we've got. And I don't know what the pocket calculator for feral cat management is going to be. Maybe an injectable sterilant. Who knows? But until that pocket calculator comes out, I argue that we've got a slide rule. Let's use it to the best of our ability. That's a great analysis there. I would never have thought of that, but I think that that's an excellent way to visualize sort of what we have going on and what the potential is for things going forward. So I think that's excellent. Much food for thought and pondering things for the state of community cats and feral cats going forward. Dr. Whedon, I want to thank you again so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. Stacey, uh, it's, like I said, it's been a privilege. I would be happy to come back. We could maybe expand a little bit on the public health thing, whatever you want to talk about, whatever your listeners are interested in. I would be happy to come back, you know, give a, an update on how the NFRC is doing, what's going on with non-surgicals. Anytime, now that I'm retired, ha-ha, <laughs> <laughs> anytime, just let me know. I'm happy to contribute to the cause. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 